Good early afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato, and I'm very pleased, in a way, to welcome you here today to talk about all the ways that uh, the government impinges on your travel through surveillance and direct intrusion on your experience as a traveler. I guess in, uh, on second thought, we won't talk about all of them, but some <laughs> of the major ways that they do. Today's event is something of a twofer. We're going to talk about two uh, different but related issues with, uh, with the government and travel. Uh, first, we'll hear from Ed Hasbrook, Edward Hasbrook. When I saw him give this presentation at uh, the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU a few months ago, I thought that poor, more people need to see this. More people need to understand the uh, intimate travel surveillance that the government conducts over all of us, law-abiding and law-breaking alike, uh, when, we, when we try to move around the country or move around the world. So first, we're going to have a full presentation from Edward Hasbrook uh, regarding his research in this area, which I think is very interesting and very concerning. After that, we'll turn to the uh, newsy topic, the, the recent uh, TSA rulemaking in the area of strip search machines. Ginger McCall from the Electronic Privacy Information Center uh, will talk to us about the latest developments in that area with the, uh, the introduction of a rulemaking on the part of the TSA having to do with its strip search policy, the rulemaking being required by court order, uh, and, the, and the TSA having taken 20 months to produce two sentences of regulatory language and only 52 pages of, of justification for the regulation it has proposed. Uh, a couple of internet notes for those of you watching online on C-SPAN or here in the room. Uh, the hashtag we recommend is pound TSA search, TSA search our hashtag, and I will be uh, looking for comments and questions that I may use during the event. So uh, please feel free to share the event uh, with your friends and colleagues online. For your ease with regard to the TSA rulemaking, there's also a tiny URL that can take you to the, the web page where the TSA accepts comments on the, uh, the strip search machine policy. That's tinyurl.com slash TSA comment. T, S, and A are capitalized, comment all lowercase. Once again, tinyurl.com slash TSA comment. So first, Edward Hasbrook. The word gadfly may have been coined for Ed Hasbrook. Uh, he, I remember, our, our very first meeting that I recall at any rate was uh, at, in Boston. Uh, and during a meeting of the DHS Privacy Committee on which I served, Edward Hasbrook accosted me in the hall and was virtually holding me there to insist <laughs> that I, I press the DHS in what way I can't recall. But uh, his <laughs> arguments were meritorious, his demeanor intense. And I think that's what you'll see from him today. Business Week uh, called him the go-to authority on international travel and an expert on airfares and how to get the best deals on the internet. Uh, he's an author, journalist, blogger, consumer advocate, and true travel expert. He's the author of the book, The Practical Nomad, How to Travel Around the World, and you can find him at a site, uh, practicalnomad.com. Now, an ordinary travel expert would be quite ordinary, but uh, especially after 911, Edward Hasbrook, uh, noticed the impingements we were suffering on our freedom to travel. And he did not uh, go along to get along, rather turned his efforts toward uh, exposing and, and debating uh, our freedom to travel. So today, I think he's one of the foremost uh, experts on the, uh, the surveillance of our travel through IT systems. That's why I want him to, wanted him to, to speak with us. 
Uh, he's, he works also as a consultant to the Identity Project on travel-related human rights and civil liberties issues. The Identity Project was founded by a longtime friend of Cato, John Gilmore. Uh, Gilmore I have fondness for as well because at a different meeting of the DHS Privacy Committee, he challenged me along with all the other members of, the, of that committee uh, to, to f return to Washington without showing ID at the airport. I took him up on that challenge and had a very pleasurable experience because at the time when you were sent to secondary search for not having uh, an ID, you got through the lines faster. So thanks to John Gilmore. Um, so, so we'll take Ed's presentation first, and then I'll come back up and introduce uh, Ginger for the second half of the ceremony. Uh, please join me now in welcoming Edward Hasbrook. Thanks very much, uh, Jim, for that very kind introduction. Thanks to all of you for coming here and to all of those of you tuning in. Uh, and a further internet note that uh, if you want to follow along at home, uh, you can find copies of the slides that I'll be showing uh, on the Identity Web Project website at papersplease.org. Since uh, September 11th of uh, 2001, the US government has implemented an extraordinarily narrowly comprehensive system of surveillance and control of our movements, both within the country and abroad. Bits and pieces of it have been called out from time to time, but I think there's been little understanding of the comprehensive big picture, which is what I'll try and give you uh, as quickly as possible uh, today. Um, the first step is the ID requirement of people having government-issued ID credentials in order to travel by common carrier. Not so much to prevent people without government-issued ID from traveling, although that's an incidental bad effect, but in order to ensure that each act of travel can be logged and correlated into the second component of this process, an ID-linked lifetime personal travel history of your movements, on the basis of which, the government has then been able to move to a permission-based travel control regime in which real-time decisions are made each time you want to go somewhere as to whether the government will let you on the basis of your identity and on the dossier of history linked to that identity. Finally, once that permission system is in place, the government has made the final step of flicking the default from yes to know, so that rather than a presumptive right to travel, which can be uh, interfered with only on the basis of uh, judicial action, the presumption is that nobody's allowed to travel unless they've received affirmative government prior permission. So I, I think the, uh, the government's insistence since 9-11 that uh, everything about airports is different and not subject to any of the usual rules has made it more difficult than it should be to put these things in perspective. I think actually that the, the, a good frame of reference for comparison for travel surveillance is the surveillance that's gone on of communications, CALEA in particular, and the uh, NSA's warrantless wiretapping. They have in common with travel surveillance that they're recording movements, in one case movements of messages, in the other case actual movements of your physical person. Both have involved unfunded mandates and burdens on industry, in the case of Kalia, on the telecoms. In the case of the programs I'm going to be talking about, more than $2 billion by the DHS' own gross underestimate of mandated modifications to travel industry IT systems in order to support performing these government surveillance and control functions. 
Finally, these systems have in common that they are suspicionless dragnets, not limited to suspects or people who are being particularly ident uh, investigated, but collecting information about everybody in case it might later be of interest to the government. But although travel is not sui generis in the way the government says, there are still significant differences. One is in the legal framework in which oddly, uh, at least in statute law, communications and the movement of our messages currently has more legal protection than information about the movements of our physical bodies. That seems weird, but that's the way it is. Um, Congress doesn't seem inclined to fix it. The second big difference, perhaps bigger difference, is in how the government uses this data. This is not merely a panopticon of surveillance, but an active real-time control system. It's a bit confusing, and this is going to be a bit technical, and I will grant that everything I'm going to say from now on is a gross oversimplification. Otherwise, we'd be here for days or weeks. Uh, travel IT is complex and technical, and DHS has confused the matters by its own inconsistency uh, of policy and language um, over the, the last decade as the system has evolved. There are three different sets of not entirely uh, identical but overlapping data that the government has required uh, airlines and travel companies to collect and make available to the government, depending on whether it's an international or a domestic flight with different names. There are also different systems with different names, secure flight for domestic travel, the automated targeting system for international travel. Um, there's also a difference that probably isn't as significant as it looks, which is that in the case of international travel, DHS actually makes its own mirror copy of the reservation information, whereas for domestic travel, it merely maintains real-time access. But again, that doesn't matter so much. All of the controls on privacy of this information that the government has talked about are controls on its copy, which are meaningless as long as it can go back to the uh, industrial host of the data and get another copy whenever it wants. So while it, who's holding the copy really doesn't matter as long as the government has root access, which it does. The people who designed these systems with DHS, who mostly came from NSA-type backgrounds and knew nothing about the travel industry, assumed after 9-11 to be really easy, they would simply get the information that the airlines have about travelers and make their own use of it. But it doesn't really work like that because most airlines outsource uh, the hosting of their reservations to companies called computerized reservation systems or global distribution systems, uh, which also serve other travel companies, hotels, travel agencies, and so forth and so on. There are four major and one more recent and as yet minor, Google, which spent $700 million two years ago to get into this business, which gives you a sense of how significant a business it is. Um, which together form, in a sense, a uh, outsourced global cloud for hosting of reservation data on behalf of the entire travel industry. If you look at this diagram, you'll notice a couple of significant things. One is that there are typically at least two intermediaries between the traveler and the government. This is why uh, the government can get this data from the travel companies without needing a warrant because under the third party doctrine, it's considered their property in which the traveler has no right. The traveler doesn't necessarily even have any way to know whether the government has gotten uh, this data. Um, but of course, being a global cloud, each node in the cloud is a point of vulnerability. Vulnerability to exploitation of this data by marketers and data miners who may be completely unknown and invisible to the traveler, um, by criminals uh, from hackers to terrorists, 
and by government agencies, not merely DHS, but other law enforcement in the US and foreign governments and their law enforcement agencies around the world. Now, in Europe, there's been a great deal of concern that, as this diagram uh, example shows, uh, someone traveling within Europe on a European airline making their reservations through a European travel agency, even when the master copy of the reservations is stored in Europe, there still may be multiple mirror copies in the cloud in the US, which DHS can access here without anybody in Europe, even the airline, knowing about it. And if you say, well, so what about Europeans? The converse holds true as well. Even if you're traveling within the US, pick your bogeyman, uh, any government in the world where either the airline or the reservation system or the travel agency has an office, can get access to it. For example, um, the Chinese Public Security Bureau can go to the United Airlines office in Beijing and ask them to call up your reservation from Washington to Chicago. And they can do that. And they're required to because they're Chinese citizens subject to Chinese jurisdiction and law. And they can hand that over to the Public Security Bureau in toto. No record if is kept of this by the reservation system. It is not visible even to the airline that this has happened. And unless you or somebody you know happens to be looking over their shoulder in that back room in Beijing when it happens after the fact, there's no way to know whether it has happened. This is uh, TSA's own uh, incomplete uh, diagram of how this process works on the government side. There are many incompletenesses here, but I want to focus uh, and, and complexities, but I want to focus on uh, a few things here. Um, you'll notice that the what's called aviation booking entities over at the uh, other end. Hmm. Uh, the aviation booking entities over at the upper left um, are merely shown as a passive pass-through rather than as the centerpiece of this. They're not shown as connected directly to the DHS at all. It's shown as going through the airlines. Actually, you should cross out those airlines going to the airlines. Those should be going directly into the aviation booking entities where DHS has route access. Over on the right side, um, you see that this is more than just what uh, TSA may describe as watch list matching. It's a much more complex uh, real-time process of evaluation. We still have a, the, the threat analysis is still a black box. It's shown here as a, a red box, but it's still, there's nothing about what goes on and how those decisions are made. There's connectivity to other law enforcement, to a call center that can reach out, call the police, have them come to the airport and question you. And there's a piece, this diagram was published by TSA before the latest updates to the system of records notices for both the secure flight and ATS systems showing that they now have real-time access to other commercial databases, credit reports, whatever, um, that they can access as well on the other side. But what may be most significant is something that's hidden over toward the left side of this diagram. This is an enlargement of that section from another version of this uh, diagram from TSA. You'll notice that there is passenger data moving from left to right, from the traveler to the airline, to those who evaluate it on the government side. But you will also notice that there are arrows going back from right to left labeled boarding pass printing result. That's the permission message. And those lines are the control lines that DHS has demanded be built into the infrastructure that prevent the airline from issuing you a boarding pass until they've received that individualized per flight, per passenger message from the government. 
Now, you might think that if they're stopping you from flying, that that might implicate the law. Indeed, it does. TSA is fond of saying you have no right of travel by any specific means. That contradicts express statutory language, not only guaranteeing your right to travel, but specifically guaranteeing your right to travel by air, and specifically obligating TSA in its operations and rulemaking to consider that right, as they never have done in any rulemaking to date. Now, if they're not following the law, can we get it reviewed in court? Ginger will be talking a bit more about that one later. But it's also interesting to look at what the express policy of the DHS has been. These statements are from speeches by former Secretary of Homeland Security Chertoff, uh, who repeatedly said that he did not believe that no-fly orders should be subject to judicial review, which is a remarkable statement from a former federal judge saying that he thought his decisions as DHS secretary should not be subject to review by the kind of person he used to be back when he was a federal judge. And while these are policies of DHS under the Bush administration, no Obama administration official has repudiated these views. And indeed, it continues to be DHS practice, not so much to defend the systems that I'm talking about here, but to actively resist being obligated to defend them before any court at all. So what is in the records that they compile? Your lifetime travel history. Um, if you've traveled uh, across US borders in the last 10 years, DHS has a file on you. We've, uh, with the Identity Project, uh, we've put out forms for people to use. You can find them on our website at paperspleased.org or on my website. Um, we've been compiling the responses. Eventually, I sued uh, for the portions they had withheld after stalling me for three years. Uh, CBP retroactively exempted uh, the automated targeting system records from the Privacy Act, and the district court upheld the retroactive application of that exemption. But they did, in their discretion, release quite a bit of self-damning uh, information. Some of the information that we know is there and have seen, and I'll show you examples, include complete copies of PNRs, passenger name records. These are airline reservations, but they also include non-airline data. Um, an index, a log of every time you've crossed the border by any means, and free text notes attached to that that give more information about whatever they deemed of interest. Um, this is a very simple passenger name record for a flight as it happens uh, from uh, Washington Dulles to uh, Azusa Airport in Buenos Aires. Uh, what's interesting here is some of the kind of associational data. The only contact information for me in this reservation is the phone number of a friend that I gave when I reconfirmed my flight, uh, who was in intrigued and somewhat surprised to know that he'd been permanently linked with me in our Homeland Security files. Um, this is another simple reservation for a flight from Montreal to San Francisco. Here we see uh, down here on the left side, this is an IP address and a timestamp. So that can be correlated with whatever other internet records might be associated with this. Of course, there's also the email address, the credit card number, permitting them to pull in a lot of other uh, associational data. These are wonders for the government for social network analysis. And in fact, that's what they talk about using them for, to find people who are not yet suspected. Um, this is deliberately a guilt by association machine. That's what it's designed for, and that's how it's used. It's not limited to air travel or travel to and from the US. This is a trip I took to Brussels lines three and four in this uh, reservation uh, reflect uh, the portion of that trip from Paris to Brussels and back by train. 
What's that doing here in a permanent DHS file? This one, uh, similar, this is a trip to uh, Strasbourg, uh, France. Line four is a ride on the Lufthansa Highway bus from Strasbourg to Frankfurt. Um, here, this particular uh, PNR extract is the smoking gun that showed that DHS has root access. They're not merely using an airline user ID. They have their own user IDs with root privileges. This person uh, traveled to Berlin, stayed there for a week, then traveled on via Prague to London, stayed there for a week, then came home. Lines three and four are a journey entirely within Europe. It was the, the, the rest of the PNR, which I've cut out here to show you this, shows that this was a separately issued ticket, not connecting to or from a flight to the US on an airline that doesn't fly to the US. United Airlines, if you called up the reservations to Berlin, would not have seen that. Only a user with root privileges would have been able to retrieve that, as DHS did. Everybody who I've spoken with who's gotten their file from DHS and brought it to me and said, what does this mean? When I've gone over it with them, been, there's been something that surprised and disturbed them in their file. Um, most of the time, once they've seen that, they don't want me to <coughs> put their file on the internet. But each of these things here are something that I have seen in actual uh, examples of files that people have received in response to their request. And remember, this is just the stuff which, in its discretion, DHS chose to t tell us. Hotel reservations, if they're made, whether or not they show up is a complex question, but they sometimes do if they're made in the same reservation with the flights. And I've seen in them, in a reservation for multiple people, linked together with their name, their gender, their age, date of birth, and so forth, the code showing behind the closed doors of their hotel room whether those two travelers asked for one bed or two in their permanent lifetime file accessible to the government of wherever. Um, special meal requests, which may show religion. A special service request, which may show invisible medical conditions. These show up routinely. Uh, reservations for tours or cruises. Again, the nature of the tour or the tour operator, the demographic, there's a lot of other information that may be more revealing than you think in these kinds of services. Billing codes are routine. Uh, for example, law firms routinely have their travel agents enter in their PNRs uh, what client they're billing the trip to. Again, this is not, this is everything that the travel company captures for its business purposes. It's just hoovered up wholesale by DHS into your permanent file. Uh, there can also be discount codes. For example, if you get a discount because you're part of a group that's traveling to a particular conference or event or uh, convention, that billing code may reveal what organization's convention you were attending. Um, even if it's an organization that is normally very resistant to disclosing its membership lists, as many are. Um, the second component of these files, in addition to the, to the reservations, is the entry exit log. This is an excerpt from mine showing entries back to 1992, even though the notice that was supposed to be published in the, in the Federal Register before this system came into operation wouldn't be published till 14 years later in 2006. Um, operation of a system of records without a proper notice is a crime nobody's ever been prosecuted for. Funny thing. Um, this Information is not just limited to flights to and from the US. It also includes overflights of the US. This is of great concern, for example, to Canadians who, if they go on vacation in Cuba, inevitably overfly the US. So the US has access to a list of all the pe people who've flown to Cuba on their vacations from Canada. 
And if you say, well, I don't care about that, what about the reverse? Imagine the reciprocal. What would happen if Cuba were to say, um, and I've routinely been in Cuban airspace on American Airlines flights between Miami and pretty much anywhere in South America. What if Cuba were to say not only that they want the passenger manifest and all the information that the airline has on everybody on any of these flights, but that the Cuban government is going to vet them in advance and nobody gets on one of these planes on American Airlines um, unless the Cuban government approve? What would we think of that? That's what the US government is now demanding of other countries. Uh, again, it's not limited to air travel. Uh, this is a log entry 2V is the code uh, in airline systems for Amtrak. This is a trip I took uh, by train across the US-Canadian border between Montreal and New York. Um, here's one for a trip by private car. More recently, the CBP has installed uh, license plate readers uh, at the border crossing, so a more recent comparable entry would also include the license number of the car that I was riding in. Um, and then finally, there's the, the free text notes that can be associated with any of the entries in this log. And these are not just people who were arrested or suspected. These can be entered even when nothing was found. Negative computer queries for criminality wants and warrants, negative vehicle exam, subject is a US citizen. In this case, this was somebody who walked across the border. Why is this recorded in their permanent file? For what conceivable purpose and use? This is from one of my files. I flew back from, uh, well, I won't say, um, but I'd connected through London um, and uh, had uh, an apple and some bread when I got to customs. And I said, can I keep these? And they said, uh, you can keep the bread, but the apple's fruit, so you have to throw it, throw it away. I threw it away and thought nothing of it. Some years later, I find in my file um, that I'm permanently uh, linked to this event. Um, on another occur uh, occasion, I had been at an agricultural uh, industry expo in Buenos Aires. It's a major industry there. And I checked the box, as you're supposed to, that says, I've been around livestock. So you may not know that what happens when you check that box is that in thoroughly biblical sense, the, the customs and border protection people get down at your feet at 5 o'clock in the morning in Miami when they've just come on shift and wash your shoes with disinfectant. Well, OK, if they get off on washing my shoes, they get off on washing my shoes. But why does this belong in my permanent file? Um, this is actually from John Gilmore's file. He had a book entitled Drugs and Your Rights. Again, if this is not prohibited recording of the exercise of First Amendment rights, I don't know what is. Um, again, from another uh, trip that John Gilmore had taken, uh, passenger was traveling for about one month. Passenger attended computer conference in Berlin and then traveled around to visit friends. 100% baggage exam negative. Passenger is self-employed quote, entrepreneur, closed quote, in computer software business. I guess it, being an entrepreneur is a suspicious fact that belongs in your permanent file. <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's more to all of this. Um, I hope that uh, all of you will be inspired by this to look into what is uh, in your file, but also to look more closely at the reality of how uh, that is being used and what we need to get out of uh, the situation we've been put into, where we now travel by common carrier uh, only uh, as a privilege granted by permission of the government. Thank you. Well, now you have some sense of the 
digital lookover that you're getting before you arrive at the airport, what about the examination your body gets when you, when you do get to the airport? I think you'll find that Ginger McCall uh, lacks the intensity of Edward Hasbrook, but she has all the doggedness and maybe more. <laughs> uh, she's the director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center's Open Government Program. Uh, she teaches on the law of open government at the Georgetown Law Center. Uh, working, she's working on a variety of issues at EPIC, including consumer protection, open government requests, amicus curiae briefs, and national security matters. She litigates EPIC's Freedom of Information Act lawsuits and is a co-editor of litigation under the federal government laws 2010. Uh, Ginger McCall has co-authored several amicus curiae briefs on privacy issues to the Supreme Court. And she regularly speaks on privacy and open, open government issues. The number of forums at which she's done so is, is, uh, is many. Hopefully she'll add to her resume the fact she's now spoken at Cato. Uh, she's, of course, uh, provided commentary to numerous outlets and, um, and journals to discuss the TSA's recent rulemaking, to the extent there is one, in the uh, strip search machine policy. Ginger McCall from Epic. Thank you very much for having me. I'll try to uh, give as much intensity as I can give to this. Um, Jim's staff was helpful enough to give me some coffee beforehand, so help, hopefully that will add to it. Um, so I guess I'll start off with the good news. Right now, we have a very unique opportunity to comment on a very controversial air travel program. Um, the body scanner program, as we're calling it at Epic now, nude body scanners, have been um, something that Epic has worked on for four or five years now. Uh, we have had several lawsuits on this topic. And finally, it's come to fruition with an actual notice and comment rulemaking period by the agency. Um, now, skeptics among you will probably ask, what would be the point of a notice and comment rulemaking period? Isn't the agency going to just go ahead and do what it wants to do anyway? But we really do believe that this is an opportunity for the American public to weigh in on this. Um, and if the agency doesn't take your comments into account, doesn't take our comments into account, we are willing to go ahead and take this further in court. Um, this notice and comment rulemaking actually came out of a lawsuit that we filed uh, on July 15, 2011. Uh, and this was a lawsuit in D.C. Circuit Court. We filed under several legal, legal doctrines, including the Fourth Amendment, uh, the Privacy Act, and the Administrative Procedure Act. Now, that Administrative Procedure Act says that if an agency is going to issue a new rule, it has to go through a notice and comment rulemaking period. It has to actually solicit the comment of the American public. It has to give you and the rest of the American public and everyone who cares um, the opportunity to comment on that rule and give the agency feedback. And the agency is supposed to take that feedback into account. Um, so we filed. Uh, we had asked the agency for, we petitioned the agency for this rulemaking multiple times. And finally, we got frustrated and we filed this lawsuit in court. Um, and the court actually rolled in our favor on the APA issue, which is quite unusual. And it was a result that we were very pleased with. Uh, the court found that, quote, the TSA has not justified its failure to issue notice and solicit comments. And the court also said that, agency, that the agency practice, these body scanner machines, the nude body scanner machines that show that naked image to the TSA officials, um, imposed a substantial burden on the public. According to the court, quote, few if any regulatory procedures imposed directly and significantly upon so many members of the public. Millions of travelers going each day through these airports, passing through these body scanner machines that were at that point posting up this graphic, graphic image for some TSA agent in a room to look at. 
Um, and the court expressed concern about the agency's use of body scanners. Uh, it ruled against us on the Fourth Amendment issue, but this was largely based on the agency's representation that members of the public had the option to, quote, opt out of the machines, that you could opt for a pat-down. Um, now, when we had originally started pursuing this topic, that pat-down was just a, a fairly typical pat-down that, that you would expect. Um, however, after we started to pursue this more doggedly, I, I suppose the agency started to get a bit frustrated uh, and started to issue what were called enhanced pat-downs. Um, some of you might be familiar with the sort of uh, libertarian campaign that, that happened in the wake of these enhanced pat-downs, the don't touch my junk guy. Yeah, if you're not familiar, I definitely encourage you to YouTube it. Um, and to do a little bit of research on what's included in these enhanced pat-downs. Uh, now, these enhanced pat-downs, this is not an option that Epic would ever stand behind. Um, we focused mainly on the body scanner issue and on the option of, of, for passengers to opt out, but that doesn't mean that we think the enhanced pat-downs are appropriate. Um, in fact, in our own comments to the agency, we're going to ask for a, a very different alternative. Um, but the court ordered the agency, in this case, uh, to undergo that notice and comment rulemaking. And uh, the, the court said the, to the agency, you need to do this, quote, promptly. Uh, the agency interpreted this as, uh, well, let's see, it was a nearly two-year delay. Um, and during this period, Epic filed multiple times with the court to, you know, encourage the court to tell the agency it needed to follow up, uh, to give the agency a 30-day deadline, to give the agency some sort of deadline by which it needed to issue this notice and comment rulemaking. Uh, and approximately... I guess 20 months later, now here we are finally looking at the rulemaking. Um, after the court set a deadline last fall for the agency to have this completed by the end of March. Um, so on March 26th, which is no surprise to those of us who are following this, actually, I figured it would be later. <laughs> I thought that it would be the final Friday in March uh, at 4.30 PM. Um, but they did it a few days early. They got it in under the wire, March 26th. Uh, the TSA started its notice and comment rulemaking period. Um, so you, the members of the public, and we at EPIC, and, and anyone else, the organizations here, Cato and others, can now comment on this. Uh, the deadline for filing is June 24th. We have information up on our website, on epic.org. Um, you can look, it's in the upper right-hand corner of our website, or you can look for the key term TSA comment. Uh, you can also use the tiny URL uh, that Jim has mentioned. And we certainly encourage you to comment on this. Um, now, we've taken a look at, these, at this proposed rule, which really amounts to two sentences. Uh, and the two, sentence that, two sentences the TSA is proposing to use to modify its current screening procedures are, um, and here I'm going to go ahead and read it for you, the screening and inspection described may include the use of advanced imaging technology. For purposes of this section, advanced imaging technology is defined as screening technology used to detect concealed anomalies without requiring physical contact with the individual being screened. That's it. That's uh, 20 months worth of work right there. Um, so nowhere in this does it take into account really the invasiveness of these machines. Nowhere does it take into account the fact that your only alternative to these machines is a super invasive pat-down. Um, nowhere do they take into account the sorts of real costs to passengers, uh, to passengers who choose to opt out of this and are then subject to long waits. I've attempted to opt out personally on this, um, and I ended up having to opt back in because I waited for about 20 minutes for a TSA officer of my same sex to come and give me an enhanced pat-down. 
Um, and finally, when I decided that I was going to miss my flight to the conference I was going to, I was forced to opt back in. Um, and this comports with a lot of what we heard from, from travelers uh, when we asked travelers to tell us what their experience at airports had been. Uh, and it comports with a lot of what we found when we made a Freedom of Information Act request to the agency. Um, we had requested originally back in, I believe it was 2008 or 2009, several different sets of documents from the TSA on these body scanners. And this is part of what uh, inspired our entire campaign against the TSA. We requested documents like contracts, statements of work, technical, specification for, technical specifications for these machines, as well as passenger complaints. And what we got back was a stack of passenger complaints that was probably about this high. Um, and we also got back contracts and statements of work, which you can find on our website. Um, and these indicated that the TSA wasn't really telling the truth about these devices. It wasn't really telling the truth about what the devices were capable of. Uh, they indicated that the devices were not designed to pick up powdered, explosive, uh, powdered explosives, which is something I'll talk about a little later in context of the, uh, of the rulemaking. Um, that the devices were capable of capturing, storing, and transferring those underlying graphic naked image, images that were produced by the body scanner machines. Um, and there were several other interesting findings that we had there. I won't spend all of my time now on that, but you can find that information up on our website. Um, and this is part of what inspired our later lawsuit about the rulemaking, is we really thought that this was quite a large step for the agency to be taking without ever actually opening up to comment from the public. So given the text of that proposed rule, uh, which again, you can find a lot of information about this on our website and also at the tiny URL that Jim has mentioned, um, we have some recommendations, uh, and these are the recommendations that we are planning to include in our comments. Uh, and we also have some places where we think that it, it might be great for other people who have complementary expertise to weigh in. Um, first, the agency has completely taken over the dialogue on this. Um, first, it was the use of the word whole body scanners. Okay, so we're going, or no, it was whole body imaging originally. So whole body imaging machines. But I guess TSA decided that that wasn't a nice, uh, warm and fuzzy enough term. Uh, and perhaps the, it gave the American public a little bit too much of an idea of what was going on with these machines. So they ch changed the term to body scanners. Uh, and now they've changed it to an even more sanitized term, which is advanced imaging technology. Um, we're pushing back on this. We would encourage you to do the same. Um, I know some people have slightly more extreme versions of this, uh, porno scanners, et cetera. Uh, we're, we've taken to calling them now nude body scanners, uh, or NBS, uh, because it gives a much more accurate description of what the machines are actually capable of. Um, we plan to support what's called regulatory alternative three. In these comments, the agency summarizes several different alternatives. Uh, and one of those alternatives is just to leave things the way that they are, uh, to stick with the metal detectors as we have been doing for the last probably, I don't know, two decades, decade and a half. Um, and another alternative is to focus on the use of metal detectors along with uh, explosives detection uh, technology. Um, and that's something that, that we would endorse because it's much more narrowly tailored. It's only looking for a particular thing and that thing is the threat. Um, whereas the body scanners pick up all manner of medical devices. They pick up anything extra that you might have in your pocket. And in fact, as we discovered when we uh, issued our Freedom of Information Act request to the agency, they are not designed to pick up the very powdered explosives that are the key threat right now. That is the PETN. Um, and we also are, are very heavily going to come out in favor of the passenger's right to opt out. Um, 
and to demand the use of generic image filters. One of the things that the agency did that I think this was somewhat of a victory to Epic and to Cato and to others who've worked on this issue for a long time is that they did make some modifications to the machines uh, in light of, of public protest against them. Um, they required that privacy filters be put on these machines. Um, but what we're asking is that those privacy filters be mandated. Um, and in fact, Congress has asked for that same thing. Uh, they've mandated that TSA use generic image filters on individuals that go through the, screen, go through the screening process. Um, and the courts have actually relied on the fact, um, in rolling against us on that Fourth Amendment claim, they relied on the fact that the agency has represented to them and has represented to the public, you have the ability to opt out. So we're saying in this role, let's go ahead and just put that into the actual regulation itself, that you passengers have a right to opt out and that the agency must use these generic image filters. There must be no underlying graphic image. There must be no other image that could possibly be stored. The image that is just the generic stick outline that has a, a spot on it that highlights where the anomaly is, that must be the only image that's produced by the machines. Um, and we're encouraging the public uh, and any other organizations, especially membership organizations, to have people submit their personal experiences with TSA. That stack of complaints that we got showed a lot about what the agency has actually been doing on the ground. Um, there's always discussions here in Washington about the reality uh, in the ideal case, but very little actual discussion about the reality on the ground. Um, and the reality on the ground is very different uh, in airports around the country. Uh, the agency represented, and we saw when this controversy really started to pick up, that they put into place in the DC airports, where members of Congress would be going through the airport, um, really great signage about the body scanner machines. And you know, you have the right to opt out. Big television screens explaining to you what these body scanner machines are and that you have the right to opt out. Um, everywhere else in the country, you got a piece of paper that was about this big, and it was usually about 25 feet away from the machine, or it was right in front of the machine so that it was already too late for you to really exercise that option. Um, and that was the best case scenario, is that you actually got that piece of paper that told you, you know, this is a body scanner machine. Uh, in some places, there wasn't even that. Um, so again, asking travelers to really let the agency know what their real experiences are on the ground. But there are some other issues to address uh, that Epic isn't really in a position to address, and I think others here might be in a better uh, position to address. Um, and that's the ambiguity of the terms in the rulemaking. Uh, so much of the terminology that in this rulemaking is just very ambiguous. It allows for a lot of wiggle room on the agency, on the agency's part, um, and we're asking others to submit comments on this. Um, Anyone who has any expertise on the effectiveness of these machines, what they're actually capable of detecting. We've seen in the documents that we received from the agency that the machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. The sort of literature that we've seen put out by Rapiscan and other manufacturers of these machines has indicated the same, uh, that the machines are, are designed to detect high-density objects, that is, ceramics or hard plastics, not powdered explosives. So anyone who has expertise on that, it would be great if someone could submit comments. Um, the adequacy of the TSA's cost-benefit analysis, uh, and, and Jim might have comments on this, but looking at the cost-benefit analysis that the agency has put together, it, it's simply not accurate, and it doesn't take into account the kinds of real costs that travelers suffer. Um, the agency seems to believe that it's very expensive to allow people to opt out of these machines, but where, where is the classification for how expensive it is for people to opt out of travel via airfare? 
Uh, a lot of people, after these machines started to be put into place, began to travel by car, began to travel by plane, or began to travel by train, and, and there is a cost to that. So to look at that cost-benefit analysis and really take it apart, because the agency hasn't taken it apart. Uh, the agency has put forth the most favorable position that it can possibly put forth on these machines. Um, to look at the health risks and really give those a good look, because TSA certainly hasn't. Um, the agency, when it started putting these machines in airports, hadn't ever had an independent assessment of the radiation risks created by the machines. Um, to really look at, at accuracy and the description of the capabilities of these machines. Um, to look at the impact of the agency's screening program on travelers with prosthetics and other medical devices. Uh, the machines are designed to pick up anomalies, and a lot of those anomalies are you know, colonoscopy bags or um, sort of devices that people might use after a mastectomy. I mean, they, they pick up a lot of very personal, very sensitive medical devices. Um, to take a look at the layered approach the TSA says that it has to, to airport security. When we say these machines aren't detective at picking up powdered explosives, what we hear from the agency constantly is, well, this is just one part of a larger layered approach to airport security. Um, so let's take a look at that layered approach. Let's really take it apart. Um, and let's let the agency know the places where this is weak, where, where it's too invasive, where the invasiveness is simply not justified by the effectiveness. Um, the retention of images still hasn't really been an issue that's been thoroughly addressed by the agency. Uh, they've constantly denied that these machines are capable of retaining images, but the documents that we got indicated clearly that the machines were designed by TSA's specifications to be able to re retain, store, transfer these images. Um, and this sort of... Uh, the stick figure technology that the agency has put into place now, what it calls automated target recognition, doesn't necessarily solve that problem. If there's still an underlying image that's taken by the machine and then just overlaid with that more politically correct stick figure image, it doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem of the, the capture and the storage of a very invasive image. Um, so we would encourage everyone here uh, and everyone who's watching to, to file comments on this, to really let the agency know what you think, to tell the agency what your real experiences are with these machines. And if you have some expertise in cost-benefit analysis, in radiation risks, in these sorts of issues, to, to let the agency know, to take the time, because this is a rare opportunity to comment on a program that you know, we, a lot of us have been working on this for four to five years. Uh, this is a very controversial program, and we actually managed to force the agency to have to take your comments. So, you know, do take this opportunity to comment on this, pro on this program. Thank you. Edward Hasbrook, I suspect you have a few things, uh, a few opinions about the TSA new body scanning. Like to hear them. Yeah, well, I would particularly strongly uh, endorse what Ginger said, um, especially for those of you watching. It's critical for the TSA to hear from those of you for whom being required to submit to a virtual strip search or to enhanced groping of your genitals is intolerable um, and who have therefore suffered the loss of your career, the loss of ability to visit family, friends, 
Um, TSA needs to hear from those of you who have been impacted. They want to pass this off as nobody should care if they're getting their genitals groped. Nobody should care if somebody, you know, who for all you know is in the secret closed room by themselves masturbating while they watch you naked. Um, nobody should care about that. It's just minor. It's not they need to hear. Um, especially from those of you who've had your lives totally disrupted by it because travel is something we are entitled to take for granted. But I have two other points. Um, one is, you know, as Ginger read that regulation, it basically incorporates the idea of the virtual strip search machine into the authority that TSA already claims that you must submit to screening. You must submit to whatever they say constitutes screening. It's critical to realize that at present there is absolutely no statutory or regulatory definition of what constitutes screening. There's no way to determine if they say you have to do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. The only way to find out whether you're allowed to do something or required to do something at a TSA checkpoint is to refuse their orders be arrested and fight it uh, in court. That's wrong, and that's a problem with the lack of rules, a lack of rule of law that far transcends the body scanners. But the other thing, the second point I want to make more specifically related to the rulemaking is that it's key for people to remind the TSA that travel is a right, that they have an affirmative, explicit, statutory duty to consider your right to travel by air. And that's what's been missing from the whole frame of reference from the start of these post 9-11 aviation security programs is any recognition that these are conditions being imposed on the exercise of a right. Once you recognize that these are conditions being imposed on the exercise of the right, then you have to recognize that they are subject to strict scrutiny including two sorts of analysis that the TSA hasn't conducted. They have to be shown to be actually effective, not merely intended for a legitimate purpose, but actually effective for that purpose. And when you look at it, most of what the TSA says they're effective for is catching drugs, not actually finding terrorists. And second, they have to be shown to be the least restrictive alternative that would fulfill that purpose. TSA hasn't even pretended to conduct a least restrictive alternatives analysis. But the starting point needs to be people need to remind them that travel is a right which they must take into consideration. Yeah, these, this, this uh, discussion of risk analysis uh, and effectiveness is really, I think, one of the weakest points of this program. It's a program that's not only very invasive, but it's not very effective. Uh, and nowhere in their cost-benefit analysis uh, within the 50 or so pages of actual analysis behind their two-sentence rule change, uh, <laughs> do they actually address this? Do they actually sit down and say, this is the real risk that's presented if we don't put these machines into place? This is how the machines mitigate that. That risk and, and do some sort of cost-benefit analysis calculation on that. I mean, there are numbers on this, and I know, Jim, earlier this year or last year, uh, you had an expert who, who was very good at estimating these actual risks that were created uh, in travel. And I mean, that's the sort of thing that we really need in these comments as someone who's very good at, at risk analysis. So I have my work cut out for me, do I? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, 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 <clears throat> Cato scholar John Mueller has really done some excellent work on, on risk management and cost-benefit analysis and undoubtedly uh, will, be, will be participating in this rulemaking. 
Related to that, uh, and we'll, let's go to the audience um, shortly. Uh, online, someone asks, what are the real and hidden costs of the TSA screening program? We've alluded to some of them. Uh, and in the, in the regulatory uh, documentation of the, these short 52 pages, most of which is not actually analysis, uh, they cite the, the literal dollar costs to TSA. Uh, but there are many others. And maybe we can brainstorm a little bit or discuss some of the other costs uh, that, that accrue to passengers, to the airline system, to airports, and so on and so forth from the, from the use of these machines. Well, there's obviously the cost to the passengers who choose not to fly when they can avoid it now, to drive instead of to fly because they don't want to be subject to these sorts of invasive uh, machines. So uh, that's... If I, if I may interrupt, that cost includes death on the highways. It does. Which occurs does. more often um, per mile traveled in cars than it does in airplanes. So there's that cost. There's also the wait time cost. Uh, these machines take longer than the metal detectors, so there's a, there's a cost associated with that. Um, I'm sure you have some well, other comments. Uh, let, me, let me take the other side of it, which is what are the costs of the surveillance component of the travel uh, surveillance and control, um, more than $2 billion, again, by DHS's own estimate of unfunded mandates of IT system changes for the industry. There's also a cost to travelers in that you are compelled by government order to provide additional information, not directly to the government, but for the government's purposes, you're required to provide that additional information to the airline. One of the reasons the airlines haven't screamed more at the unfunded mandates is that they've gotten a government gift. They get a free ride. There are no restrictions whatsoever after you've been forced to tell them this personal information on their ability to use, sell, monetize this in other ways. So it involves a massive government-coerced transfer of informational property from individual travelers to the travel industry, certainly measured in the billions of dollars, although I think it's difficult to quantify. You all might recall, as travelers, those of you that are, a few years ago, as airlines started collecting birth date, they didn't all have that. If you're not a you know, frequent traveler or in their frequent flyer program, they need your birth date. And so nowadays, and it was only a few years ago that it wasn't the case, uh, you do have to share your gender and your birth date in order to buy that ticket so that it can be run past these systems. Uh, do we have uh, questions or comments from the audience? I see the first um, one in the third row back on the aisle. Wait for the microphone. In the interest of your privacy and anonymity, I don't require you to identify yourself. <laughs> Just wave that right. Um, my name is Brian Beery. I'm a Washington correspondent for Europolitics. It's an EU affairs newspaper. And I, I followed this issue because the EU spent years trying to negotiate passenger name record agreements with the US. And I was just particularly fascinated when you started describing data that the US government would have concerning trips taken within Europe um, and not even on airlines. So can you just quickly recap how that ends up in the hands of the US government? And then just more generally on the agreements, I mean, I know that the EU, two of the things that apart from the, the volume of data was also the issue of the retention period, how long the data can be kept, and the fact that there was no judicial review. Um, what's your view on, on those other two issues at the moment? Okay. Um, well, we could talk all day about that. But in terms of how does the U.S. government get the information, as I showed you, about flights, train trips, bus trips within Europe? It gets it because the data is already stored or copies of it are already stored or are accessible in the U.S. 
Now that's possible because US companies that do business in Europe has almost universally completely ignored EU data protection law and because EU data protection authorities have completely failed to enforce the law. That whole agreement between the US and the EU that you were talking about only relates to the mirror copies kept by DHS of this data and does nothing to cure the pre-existent flagrant violation of European law by the fact that the data is already transferred in the commercial sector to the US. But enough about uh, that. The other part of your question was, well, again, that the agreement creates no judicial review because by its own terms, it is not binding on the US and is not enforceable in the US. All the agreement constituted was a partial grant of immunity so that some of the things that airlines had, travel companies had been doing that violated EU law would no longer violate EU law. It did nothing to create a right of judicial review in the US. This state is already exempt from the Privacy Act as far as the government sector. There are no privacy laws governing uh, airlines you know, or reservation systems in the US, so the commercial use of this data is completely unregulated. So that agreement did nothing to solve uh, any of the problems which predated this and persist. There's a question right down front here. Yeah, I'm not afraid to identify myself. Uh, Lisa Simeone, I'm a writer and editor at TSA News Blog. We've been covering this and we've been urging our readers to submit their comments. Before people submit their comments, they should at least know that the TSA very conveniently has started removing all the RapaScan machines, which are the backscatter, the radiation emitting X-ray machines. So I think they can say by the time this comment period rolled around, oh look, there are no radiation emitting machines, we've removed them all. But the millimeter wave machines have not been tested for safety regardless, and even if they're 100% safe, there's still an invasive search of your body. And they also have a 54% false positive rate. So they alarm on more than half the people who go through them, falsely alarm. So before you submit your comments, I would just urge you perhaps not to dwell so much on the radiation because they're removing those. Don't give them that chance to boot your comment out of the public docket. Concentrate on the Fourth Amendment violation, the violation of our, our bodies, the violation of our right to travel about the country freely, the, the, the Fourth Amendment violation, and the fact that the, the scanners are so ineffective. They have a 54% false positive rate. Yeah, and the one issue that comes up with those false positives also is that once you set off that alarm, then, then you're getting the pat down. Let's take a question over here. Um, in the middle of the front row. My name is Helen Anderson. Uh, I have been trying to get my case of invasion of privacy by uh, military satellite surveillance into court for 40 years. Uh, our country continues to be more invasive of people's privacy rights every year. Uh, attorneys will not take my case. My question is, why don't they do something about it? It's the legal profession that is, is creating all of this chaos. Let's take that. What about, what about private rights of action? Now, the, the uh, EPIC brought uh, an administrative procedure action. Uh, there are a number of cases around the country. Your thoughts on uh, how this bubbles up in the courts? Well, we've seen several travelers who's, who have brought cases against the TSA. Um, the problem is that there's a somewhat obscure provision that requires that if you bring a case against the TSA, um, you have to do it in D.C. Circuit Court. 
Um, and that was a procedural problem for several of the plaintiffs in those cases. Um, it, it's generally, it, it's, it's going to be fairly difficult to challenge this uh, because, because the courts have taken for granted that uh, the TSA has very wide latitude in the sorts of searches that it can do within airports. Uh, they give great deference to the agency on the Fourth Amendment issues. Um, there is, of course, a possibility that someone who's bringing the lawsuit, if you find a court that, that isn't quite so sympathetic to the agency and takes into account the fact that you, know, you pretty much have your choice of the nude body scanner machine or the very, very, very invasive pat-down, uh, and that's not really, from a Fourth Amendment search standpoint, uh, a very effective choice. Uh, there's not really a whole lot of real choice within, those, within that scenario. Um, then there might be a better outcome, but it does need to be brought uh, in the D.C. Circuit Court. Okay. I, I just mentioned, I mean, those cases are going on, and uh, to partially address one of those questions, you know, two of the most significant, uh, Corbett versus Napolitano, uh, was brought by a non-lawyer, a software entrepreneur, as it happens, uh, John Corbett, who's done, I think, I would say as a non-lawyer, he's done a remarkable job, pro se. Um, that's worth looking at. These cases are not dead. They're still pursuing them on appeal. And uh, I'm going up to Boston after this event. Uh, the First Circuit in Boston will be hearing Redfern versus Napolitano uh, tomorrow morning, uh, brought uh, initially by a couple of uh, Harvard law students who have since graduated but are continuing to uh, pursue that case. So private rights of action are not entirely dead, although they continue to throw as many procedural barriers in the way of them as they can. Yeah, and there is the possibility to sue under the APA. Um, you mentioned Secure Flight. We've, we've filed comments on that, and it's something that we're following up on. It's a, an issue that we've been following for several years. Uh, and we may end up actually filing suit under the APA on that in a similar fashion that, that we filed suit on this one. I keep hearing about these entrepreneurs suspiciously, <laughs> suspiciously pursuing their rights. Let's take a question, second row on the aisle. Hi, my name is Alan Abel, a correspondent here from Post Media Canada. The passenger who chooses not to fly to New York who decides to drive, uh, if you have a transponder for easy pass, you're monitored along the highway, uh, your phone obviously can be accessed. If you look at what I'd call the suspicionless dragnet, how is GPS factoring into that and what is the government mining or, or what do you fear will be mined from our GPS constant uh, recognition of where we are. Yeah, I mean, well, the GPS issue, the GPS that you have in your phone, right now there's not a whole lot of protection for that location information. Um, we've asked Congress again and again to issue some sort of real comprehensive legislation that would protect location information, uh, and Congress has thus far failed to deliver. Um, there's also the issue of automated license plate readers, which was something that you had mentioned, and we saw this recently. Where we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with Customs and Border Protection, which is actually just about the only agency we can get to respond to our Freedom of Information Act request in anything under a year. Um, so we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with them, and we got back several memorandums of understanding that they had um, they've been sharing their license plate data, not just with other federal agencies, but also, and this ties into something you said as well, with third-party companies. Uh, they've been sharing that license plate reader data with insurance companies, car insurance companies, who have then been sharing it out more widely with a larger web of companies that are part of what's called an N, the NLETS database. Uh, these are law enforcement, company, law, law enforcement uh, agencies as well as companies that are sort of associated with those and doing security-related work. So this data, it just gets shared out and shared out and shared out just on a wider and wider scale 
well. Um, so the license plate readers is one thing to definitely pay attention to. Um, and they're being put in. There's a lot of them in DC. Uh, there are a lot of them now in Maryland, I think in Virginia as well. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of regulation around that either. Um, there is some hope for the privacy of location data, at least vis-a-vis -vis the government uh, after the US v. Jones case, uh, which was a GPS tracking case last year where the Supreme Court ruled unanimously uh, that there is in fact a privacy interest in, GPS, in location data. Um, but we're sort of waiting to see that trickle down and the agencies have been attacking that, the law enforcement agencies have been attacking that pretty roundly. This is also one of the loopholes that you can drive a truck through in that uh, CBP operates under basically what they claim as the complete uh, border exception to the Fourth mm -hmm. Amendment, which makes border regions, we're sitting in a border region now because we're within 200 miles of the ocean, um, uh, they consider border regions to be the virtual equivalent of the border. So CBP is claiming that they could set up license plate readers in, in the areas where most of the U.S. population lives with no regulation whatsoever. Um, and for those who may be you know, tempted to think, well, you know, this, I, I don't care that much about this information, part of the problem is that what is innocuous here and now may be something that you have strong reasons to keep private somewhere else or at some other time where different rules apply, especially if you're traveling internationally, uh, or where policies and what is and isn't legal can change for better or for worse with time. Um, and that's part of the particular danger of not merely looking at this stuff now, but recording it in your permanent file against that future when whatever category it is you fall into may be the ones who are getting rounded up. And there's some great language in particular on the, the privacy implications of location data in Sotomayor's concurrence in U.S. v. Jones' case, uh, and all of the sort of sensitive data that can come out if, if your location is being tracked. Um, you may be going to a religious institution or a political rally or an abortion clinic or a particular kind of doctor's office, the therapist's office, uh, and all of that is, is very private information that you might not want being logged forever in some secret file somewhere. Take a question down here on the front. Yeah, uh, Edward, a dozen years ago, I backpacked around the world for 20 months. And before I left, I bought your great book and bought an air ticket from you also. And I thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here in a room with you. Um, for, for those who don't know, this guy is a living legend in the travel, uh, in the travel world. Um, coming back to the right to travel, you know, the, that law, right to travel in the navigable airspace, that seems rather narrow in some ways. What is the big picture of our right to travel, legally, constitutionally, or whatever? And what would be reasonable exceptions? I would think it's reasonable to record the identities of everybody who crosses the border. Not all that data you were showing us, but some basics. So what, would be a, what should be the right to travel in a more comprehensive way? And what would be the reasonable exceptions and limitations? Well, in terms of what should be, well, first question, what, where does the right to travel come from? We were, I was actually talking about this with Jim a bit before the event. Um, constitutionally, I think it, it counts both as part of the First Amendment, which guarantees the right to assemble. To assemble is an active verb. It means not merely to be in an assemble, but to come together in an assembly. The First Amendment right to assemble is, means the right to travel, to be together. Uh, as when we came here. Um, it's also, the right to travel is also one of those unenumerated rights which are by the Constitution reserved to the people. 
Um, and you can also get to it from the framework of international human rights. Now, as far as what should be exceptions to the right to travel, when should you be prevented from traveling? You should be prevented from traveling when a court has issued a no-fly injunction. Um, you know, there are, there are, people go to court every day, thousands of them in this country, in domestic violence cases, asking for an injunction, saying, you're threatening to kill me and our children, um, and so I want the court to order you not to walk down my block. And courts issue those. We have established legal process for no-walk orders. They could be followed, but the U.S. government has never actually sought a no-fly injunction. They've insisted that all no-fly orders should be standardless administrative orders. They have no authority for that. So interference, actually stopping you from travel, should be based on a court injunction, unless there's actually a basis to arrest you for something on the spot. If you're not under arrest, you're not under injunction, the no-fly list should be a list of those against whom there is an injunction. As far as what conditions should be put on it, that comes back to the strict scrutiny. Those conditions that can be justified as actually effective and necessary for a legitimate purpose and that are the least restrictive alternative that could serve that purpose. I want to talk about that injunction thing because we actually found something very interesting in some Freedom of Information Act documents that we got from the FBI a few years back on the uh, no-fly list. And one of the things that we found is that even if a court gives you an acquittal on a charge, you can still be included on the no-fly list. So even an acquittal in court is not enough to get someone off the no-fly list. No no-fly order, it's a whole different class of litigation, but at this point, no no-fly order has been reviewed on its merits by any U.S. court despite vigorous attempts. Yeah, and you're not gonna find out that you're on the no-fly list because according to the guidelines that we got, it's actually very illegal for them to even give you any information indicating that you're on the list. Yeah. Down here. Uh, wait, wait for the microphone for our audiences online and uh, video, thanks. Okay, um, I'd like to go back to one of the things you had mentioned regarding when you opt out and you get the basically to search. What are the rules and the guidelines on who they hire to do that? I have found it so offensive when my young daughter was searched at 13. The person definitely didn't know what they were doing. And when I've been searched, you know, you have your breast squeezed, you have inappropriate behavior that no one else would be allowed, but dare you say something, and then you're not gonna be going on your trip. And so you have to allow someone to, you know, basically, it is, do they have any type of guidelines on the people they choose? You have to sit there and allow your child to be abused by somebody right in front of you. And yes. it's disgusting. And I actually, I have never seen the guidelines. Um, and this, I think, is actually a very good moment to point out the sort of effectiveness that we as citizens can engage in uh, against the agency here. Uh, when they started doing these enhanced pat-downs, people protested, especially on behalf, parents on behalf of their small children who were being patted down by TSA officials. Um, and the agency did change its practice after that. Um, children under the age of 12, I think, are no longer subject to the same sorts of pat-downs or, or the body scanner machines. So, I mean, we do want to push back on the agency. We can create real change here, but that requires that we actually participate in this democratic notice and comment process. I mean, we have to mobilize. Anything from you, there, there are no rules. That's the problem. Other questions, comments? There along the aisle. Yeah, would you go a little bit further on what you talked about, how many, what the results of this have been? How many terrorists have been caught 
what do they say when you ask that question? Uh, TSA has now spent about $100 billion since 9-11 on trying to catch terrorists. How many, how many have we gotten for that amount? Yeah, and I think that's a very valid question. Um, I know that Bruce Schneier and some others have some good writings on this idea of national security theater. Um, what we the, These things that the, the government participates in that perhaps make us feel safer, but don't actually really eliminate that much more risk. Uh, and oftentimes the programs are very evasive, they're very invasive, they're very expensive, uh, but there isn't that much um, correlation uh, between the elimination of risk and those and those costs. Uh, I think it would be great to have someone who is a real expert on the risks that are presented, uh, someone who's a real expert on the numbers, uh, present comments to the agency on this topic. Um, we don't really know, although the answer appears to be zero. Um, Congress hasn't pursued this question too much. It's actually, I've testified at, at hearings in the European Parliament in Brussels and uh, the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa. Their members of Parliament have, have pressed this question. And the response from DHS is, this has been a success because we've stopped so many people from traveling. But what they haven't said is anything to clarify whether those are examples of success or whether those are examples of cases in which they have deprived people of their rights. Those are not necessarily people who actually have been convicted of anything, and in fact, it appears that in general they haven't. Mostly, again, when pressed for success, they talk about how many arrests, and then you look at it, and it's drug arrests. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, looking at the recent history of attempted bombings on planes, it, it might be more worthwhile for the agency to spend its money on some basic training for American citizens on how to disarm a terrorist. It's, it's worth noting that terrorists caught isn't the only indicia of success in a program like this. It has a deterrence effect as well, and so there might be some number that, were, that declined to, to try what they were planning. Uh, given that, if that's the major benefit, we could just have the machines not collect any information at all and just run people through them to make them think that they're being, that they're being looked at this way. Uh, we're starting to run, run short on time, and I have a couple of burning questions, but are there any other others from the audience before we conclude? Um, I, I have two questions. I'll start with the curveball. Uh, our audience may have picked up that neither of you are libertarians, uh, and I'm wondering what you would think of the policy I prefer ultimately, which is to restore responsibility for security to the airlines and to the airports. Uh, it's had a, a surprising amount of uh, currency, I think. Uh, a lot of people are more amenable to it than I would have expected, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on on what the, what the situation would be like were there to be private accountability again for security in this area? Well, I think we would probably be facing a lot of the same issues. I mean, the, the collection of data here, it would probably not be, it wouldn't make a big difference to me or I think to others, at, at least Epic and many other civil liberties organizations, who it is that's you know, using these machines and who it is that's collecting the data, uh, especially with the third parties, oftentimes that data is then being shared out uh, in a very large sphere, as I talked about with the license plate readers. So I think that that issue would still remain. Um, perhaps there would be more of a push toward um, cost effectiveness, uh, but I don't know, it's, it's hard to tell. Well, the airline industry receives enormous subsidies uh, in part in exchange for their use of public resources and their agreement to operate as common carriers. And again, this is speaking more personally, but I think the choice was made when it was, you know, an early pioneer act of deregulation, when the Airline Deregulation Act was, was passed in 1978. And the choice was made to allow airlines free choice of setting their own prices, at least domestically, but 
those provisions I showed you earlier, requiring them to respect travel as a right and requiring them to operate in a non-discriminatory way as a common carrier were retained. So I think the key thing, if you were to transfer security back to the airlines, would be to maintain and actually enforce a continued obligation that they actually operate as common carriers and treat travel as a right. And if you don't want to take on all comers, well, then you can become a charter operator and you can pick and choose you know, who you want to travel. But if you want a license to operate as a common carrier, you still need to be subject to an obligation to respect the rights of, of your customers. My own thought has been, at, at the very least, we'd get more pleases and thank yous at the <laughs> My way of thinking about the, the, the general project of bringing um, uh, the, the suit that you did and then the comments, I'll, I'll say again, tinyurl.com slash TSA comment with TS and A capitalized. tinyurl.com slash TSA comment for those of you who, who want to uh, register your comments. That the overall arch, the scope of this project is to try to bring the Transportation Security Administration in at least one respect under the rule of law. And a lot of what we've been talking about here today is about the rule of law with regard to, uh, with regard to air transportation and air security. With the issuance of this exceedingly slim, somewhat contemptuous notice of what the regulation is, uh, given, given that, uh, that the second highest court in the land asked for it, I wonder if we haven't been set back in that project because the, the regulation will be rejected in the courts when it finally gets there. And we'll have to do another, another few years of work to get a good regulation that can then be challenged on the substance of whether this provides security benefit in exchange for the costs. But I wanted to hear your prognosis, what you think happens, how this plays out, how long it takes to get the TSA under the yoke of law if we can't just get rid of it. Well, I think we just keep whittling away at it. Um, we have seen some movement on the part of the agency in response to public outrage about the body scanners, at least. Um, it, originally, they were subjecting airline pilots to the body scanners, which was patently ridiculous, because if you're an airline pilot, you're already flying a plane, and so you already have control of the plane and can destroy it should you so choose. Uh, assumably, you've gone through the proper clearance clearance uh, programs to, to ensure that you're responsible enough to fly that plane, so why should you have to go through the body scanner? Um, and the agency had, has since, I believe, made an exception for the airline pilots, uh, an exception for small children, uh, at least in regards to some screening. Um, we've seen a push toward the automated target recognition machines. Those are the stick figure machines. Um, I, I do think that that you know we can force the agency eventually to get into line, but it's going to be death by a thousand cuts, and it's going to take a lot of follow through. Um, and this is, I don't know. I guess I still have faith in the democratic process. I would say, you know, we need litigation, and it's good that that's happening. We need to appeal to Congress um, more, because they haven't taken up this issue uh, the way they should. But ultimately, we don't get rights by appealing to somebody else. We have rights. We retain our rights by exercising them. I said that, you know, the only way, uh, really, uh, to get these things established is for people to say no to illegal orders, illegal demands. Um, if you're prepared to do that, take the rap and, and fight it. But unless people stand up and say no, this is not going to move forward. Yeah, you have to kick up a fuss. Send in your angry comments. 
When we again have the government recognizing our right to travel, and I phrase that, that, uh, that line in light of Ed's uh, comments to the effect that we have them, the government just doesn't recognize them. When we again have the government recognizing our right to travel, it'll be in no small, small part thanks to the work of Ginger McCall and Edward Hasbrook. Join me in thanking them for being here and thank all of you for being here.